Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 30 and verse 39. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever did. This is the word of the Lord. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the blessings of the gospel because we need to be reminded. It's very important to be reminded of what you receive the blessings we receive when we become a believer. The Bible calls us and tells us to remember, to remember these things. Why? It's because more than ever <clears throat> in our society today, people are saying that they are spiritually thirsty. And, and this passage is about living water. It's supposed to quench spiritual thirst. You know, it's what the woman wanted to know. The woman said, well, uh, you know, what is it that can quench spiritual thirst? Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who is asking you for water, who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. What he's saying is this. He's saying, listen to me. You need to understand. 
You need to know what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to, what I'm about to give you. Because if Jesus' claims are not true, we should dismiss him. Because his claims are so radical. But if his claims are true, if his claims are true, um, then connecting with him is the key to quenching our spiritual thirst. We should listen to everything he's got to say. If Jesus' claims are not true, why listen to anything he's got to say? But if Jesus' claims are true, then we need to listen to everything he's got to say. There are three things we're going to hear today. It's what water does. It renews us. It refreshes us. It gives newness to our lives. The gospel gives us a new agenda. It gives us a new life. It gives us a new love. It gives us a new agenda because it gives us a new life because it gives us a new love. First, a new agenda. The gospel gives us a new agenda. Um, Verse 9, the woman says, you know, what are you talking to me for? She's surprised. Why, Why are you talking to me? Verse 27, the disciples, later on, they come across Jesus talking to this woman, and they're surprised. They said they marveled at the fact that he, she, he's talking to a woman. Why? In verse 6, Jesus is sitting by a well, and he's talking with this woman. You know, rabbis in the ancient times always sat down and taught while the disciples stood around them and listened and learned. Um, and so this woman, in essence, is becoming a disciple. Is becoming a disciple, and that's amazing because to be a disciple is to literally walk with Jesus. They were called the people of the dust. Why? Because back then the disciples followed so closely behind their discipler that, and as, as the discipler would walk, they would walk right behind him that the dust off the discipler's feet would get, gather on the disciples' clothing. They were called the people of the dust. They literally walked with him. Um, this woman is becoming a disciple. And, and you know, this is a woman, and, she, and she's alone, and she's a Samaritan. Why is she alone? In the ancient times, water, pretty much like today, is needed for everything. You needed it for cooking. You needed it for cleaning. You needed it for bathing and for drinking. Not too different from today, right? But in those days, women always walked together because it was an arduous journey to get to the destination. The irrigation systems back then were poor. So to get to that place, it was an arduous journey, and women always traveled together in the coolest part of the day because they carried back a lot of water with them. But this woman was alone. No one traveled with her. She didn't want to travel with anybody else. Okay? Why was she alone? She deliberately traveled at the sixth hour, the hottest time of the day, um, and it was because she married many men. She married many men. She was a social and moral outcast. She was on the outskirts of every ring, every social ring racial ring, gender ring, um, moral ring, religious ring. She was on the outskirts of that. And, and Jesus says to her, you're in. Let's be together. You and I, let's be together. Come and follow me. I came, he says, he had to go to Samaria. That's verse four. He had to go to Samaria. I'm, I've gone out of my way for you. I came for you. In verse four, Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee um, and he passes into Samaria, so he's crossing ethnic boundaries. In verses 6 to 7, he, he sits down, and um, meaning that he's a rabbi. He's teaching this woman. He's crossing gender boundaries. Women had no rights in the ancient days, no rights. Um, verse 7, it's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's a half-blood. She was considered impure, so now Jesus is crossing cultural boundaries. In verse 9, it says, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Today, wars are being fought over religion. He's crossing religious boundaries. 
Verse 18, he says, you know, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not even your husband. She's an adulterer. She's a Samaritan woman adulterer. He's crossing moral boundaries. After Jesus dies and resurrects, who does he choose to be the first witness? He chooses Mary Magdalene. A woman's testimony back then was not, never, was not admissible in court. Women had no rights. But it wasn't just the fact that she was a woman. She was an outcast woman. She was considered a prostitute, maybe even demon-possessed at one point. So she had absolutely no social standing whatsoever. And, you know, if Jesus was smarter, he would have chosen a consul. He would have chosen a mayor. But no, he chooses a woman, an outcast woman. And here Jesus is sitting and teaching a woman, not a politician, not a religious leader. Those were all men back then. What does this tell you? Being a Christian, this is going to shock some of us who've grown up in the church. Being a, being a Christian, um, being a disciple, living water is not based on our achievements. It's not based on merit. It's not based on even our moral standing before God. Can you believe that? This woman, she's not praying. She's not seeking to know God. She's not praying to know God. In fact, she's running away from God. She's running away from people. Jesus says, you're thirsty. I know you're thirsty. She says, I'm, what? You know, uh, she says, what is living water? Where do I find living water? Uh, how do I get living water? She has no clue. She has no theology. She's completely off-center in her understanding of spirituality. She just came for water. That's all she wanted, a drink. There was no intent to meet with God. A thousand years from now, I don't know how many people God will write about in this room. I mean, not God, that the history will speak about in this room. But they will write about this woman, and they'll talk about this woman. God has chosen the least of them to be the one who will be remembered. And what Jesus is saying is here is that there is no ethnic boundary, there is no cultural boundary, there's no gender boundary, there's no social boundary, there's no religious boundary, there's no moral boundary that I am not willing to cross for your sake. That's remarkable. It's an amazing thing. Completely throws our view of God out the window. We have to refashion our view of God. He says, you know, only if you see yourself on the inside, you know, only see, only if you see yourself in who you are first, and if you're broken by that, that's the prerequisite. You have to admit that you're thirsty. He says, then you're in. Then you're in. Do you see that? Do you know that? That's the new agenda. The second is the gospel gives us the new agenda because it gives us a new life. Here's Jesus at the sixth hour, sitting at a well that Jacob had given to his son. And a Samaritan woman, you know, crossing all those boundaries, the Samaritan woman who is completely outcast by society, approaches to draw water. And Jesus is drawing her in. You know, verse 9, she calls him a Jew, meaning you are very, very different. This is the north versus the south uh, in, in the Civil War. You know, in verse 11, she calls him sir. In verse uh, 19, she says, I perceive you to be a prophet. Jew, then sir, then prophet, in verse 29, she says, could this be the Christ? Jesus is drawing her in in this conversation. And the conversation to us, as we read it, it seems very, very choppy. 
You know, what's, can you make any sense out of this? But I'm telling you here that these two people, as they're talking, they made absolute sense to one another. They understood one another clearly. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I'm giving you something more than just for forgiveness. I'm offering to you something more than forgiveness, more than just a fresh start. I'm giving you a new life. I'm giving you the opportunity to have a new life. Now, we don't live in the climate like the Middle East. I mean, we experience humidity, we experience high heat, but nothing like people in the Middle East. We've never saw anyone die of, of dehydration. We may have come close to seeing people suffer from dehydration, but my guess is most of us here um, have not seen anyone die of dehydration. But our bodies are made of water. Our bodies are made of water, and there's, there's a tremendous need. Our bodies are crying out for water all the time. Every cell in our body at any given point in time crying out for water. And when we're dehydrated, what happens? We get headaches, dry throat, cotton mouth, right? But over time, as that dehydration, as this thirst uh, progresses, lots of heat, there's actually searing pain on the inside. Your body, they say, starts to burn from the inside, until you ultimately die of torment and torture. And it's not, it's a very, very slow process. And Jesus is saying here to this woman, I have something that your soul needs, like your body needs water. Your soul has been thirsting, has been craving. Every spiritual cell in your soul has been crying out for living water. And I have something that can quench that thirst. That's what he's saying. The Bible says, you know, if God is not the center of your soul and you place any other belief, any cause, any relationship, anything, you know, we place our beauty or our wealth, our youthfulness, our material possessions, our children, our precious children, because it's so easy to justify placing them at the center, right? The Bible says that when you do that, your soul will start to thirst, and then there will be an inner, an inner spiritual burning inside of you that will lead to death and decay and corrosion. If you're going to say it another way, I'm going to say it like this. If you place your hopes of a good life, a good life into anything other than Jesus, any other beauty as opposed to his beauty, any other work, any other achievement as opposed to Jesus saying it is finished, any other wealth, apart from experience the richness and the fullness of being in Christ. Any other relationship, be it your child, your spouse, a good friend, any other relationship other than being intimate with God himself, then you will thirst. You will die of thirst. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like drinking from the sea. When you're doing those things, it's like drinking from the sea, but it, you know what sea is? It's salt water. It looks like your body and your mind start to play tricks on you. If you're dehydrated and you're out at sea and you know it's salt water, but it looks like it's going to refresh you and you take of that salt water, it actually, instead of refreshing you, it speeds up the thirst. It speeds up the decay. It speeds up the death. That's what happens. It kills you. But if you take of Jesus, this is living water. If you take of Jesus... You know, he says, if you drink of me, verse 14, springs of water will well up into eternal life, he says. That's what he says. Salt water, you think it's going to refresh you. But he says, in you will become a spring of life if you take of me. That's what it means to worship. 
That's what it means when you say uh, we're worshiping. You know, when we're worshiping something, we're placing our emotional and spiritual, your psychological, um, you're, you're placing that, that well-being, the emotional well-being, the spiritual well-being, the well-being of the soul, you're placing it into something else. That's what it means to worship. You're saying this is the center of my life, my motivational center, the reason why I work, the reason why I just need to accomplish things. It's all for some sense of worth. And something resides at the heart of our sense of worth, our deep desire for worth. And, and, you know, when you do that, there's this incredible burden because, you know, all your hopes for purpose, it's not, your job is not just a job anymore. It's your hopes for significance and purpose in life. Your relationships, you know, your friendships, your children, it's not just a relationship anymore. It's not just a, a calling uh, to serve anymore. You know what it is? It's, it's meaning through intimacy. You need that intimacy because that's what gives you worth. You know, some of us, it's a cause. It's like an ideology. It's a pursuit. It's a cause because that's going to give us meaningfulness in life. Or it could be a family, or it could be your job. And when these things fall apart, you know what happens? Your life starts to fall apart, you start to thirst. You have a relationship, it's great. You have this great relationship. But it's never going to quench your thirst. You know why? Because whatever relationship you have, they're not going to accept you the way Jesus is going to accept you. There are going to be times when they reject you. They're not always going to be accepting. You're going to fight, and you're going to disagree. And you multiply that by 25 and 30 years, you're going to start to thirst. At some point in those 25 to 30 years, you will thirst. You will thirst. And, you know, you realize, you know, you've placed your hope in this relationship, and as a result, you try to control the relationship. And you try to manipulate the relationship. And you play these subtle tricks and these subtle games to, to get attention or to get that relationship. And you know what happens? You're going to kill that relationship. You're going to destroy that relationship. You're going to suffocate that relationship. Or you yourself will be such a slave in that relationship, you will suffocate and you will thirst. This woman, she wants water. Verse 11, she says, where can I get this living water? Where can I get it? You know, and and she's acknowledging thirst. Verse 15, she says, give me, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. You know, that's what she says. What does Jesus say? You know, it sounds choppy, but he says, you need to go call your husband. What's he doing? He, just, he had her. He says, you need to call, call your husband. And, and what he's saying to her is this. He's saying, your heart has gone bad. Your heart is so corroded. You're going and you're going. You have five men. The, you know, you're not making your way up. You're actually making your way down. You've got six men. This sixth one, he's not even your husband. Are you giving up? You are so desperate. You'll take anything. You are just thirsting, thirsting. He says, your heart has gone bad, and I can give you something that will last. Now, of course, we want to live for love. Of course, we want to live for justice. Of course, we want to live for fulfillment to some degree. But when those things start to rule you, when those things start to control you, And a lot of us, we come here and we're gripped by that. We see that. We see how gripped we are by these things. But the moment we walk out that door, some light flicks off and we go right back into being ruled by the things that we desire. That's indicative of a very, very deep thirst. You need something that's going to last beyond that door. That's what you need. Jesus says, I can give you a lasting hope 
I can give you a living justice. I can give you an eternal fulfillment. I can give you a beauty that will never die. It will never die. How do you do that? If you pile into yourself, you're always going to be thirsty. If you're, you know, you're always hungry. You're always thirsty. That's why you're piling into yourself. Every relationship has been built to serve you. And it shows because eventually you lose those relationships. It will corrode. Even the relationships themselves will corrode. Some of us have experienced consequences of that. But here Jesus says, you've got to pile into me. When you do that, a spring is going to start to well up in you and it's going to start to flow outward. You're going to start to look outside of yourself. Relationships stop being about what you can get but what you can give. Why? Because no matter what happens, no matter what happens, yet my life and my joy will just bubble through. It's unstoppable. You can't stop a spring. Have you ever tried to stop a river from flowing? You can't. It's just going to flow. It's just going to flow. Here's this woman. She's seeking an everlasting love and she's pursuing it. She's gone to great lengths, great lengths to find this love. And Jesus says, your pursuits have led to just greater thirst. Six men, no joy. Incomplete. That number six, incomplete. No joy. You're robbed. You're thirsting. Yet I've come for you. I have come for you. Here's how you know he's coming for you. There are three things that you know. If you're experiencing these things, three things, he's coming for you. First, he's alone. Today in our society, in our world, we're so connected in every which way. We're connected even as we sleep. There are things that are blinging and going off right around us on our phones, on our laptops, on our computers, you know, and on our TVs for that matter today, right? But we hate being alone today. But this woman is alone. We, we see being alone as a curse. This woman, she probably is cursed. She's alone. But if this woman wasn't alone, this conversation would never have taken place. You're isolated because of your screw-ups. Every one of us here we probably have that one thing where we say, I screwed up, and it has costed me huge. And we feel isolated because of that. This woman, her screw-ups got her alone. When we're successful, we're not alone. There's always lots of people around you. There's no time to think. There's no time to reflect. When you're beautiful, when you're young, when you've got money, lots of people always around you. But when those things crash, what happens? You're alone. You're alone. And Jesus is saying, I will use even your screw-ups to get you alone with me. That's what he's saying. If you're suffering because you feel lonely or because you're alone, Jesus is waiting. He's actually waiting for you. He's saying, come to the well. Drink. Drink of me. And you will come to new life. Renewal. The second thing is she's inquiring and he's responding and he's inquiring and she's responding. There's a dialogue. There's an argument. There's a fight. You know, if you find yourself arguing with God, angry with God, fighting with God, complaining to God, you know what's happening? He's developing a relationship with you. Relationships that always stay good are not good relationships, right? Every relationship here that's been good in your life has a fight in it. And if you've got one that you know that is good and you haven't fought yet, you're going to fight. You're going to fight because that's, that's what makes it, that's how you get deeper. And she's inquiring and he's responding and he's inquiring and she's responding and she's saying, I don't understand. Explain this to me. Give me this. Take me there, right? And he's saying, well, you got to do this. Go call your husband. She's upset. She says, whoa, you know, they're going back and forth. They're fighting. They're arguing. They're, they're dialoguing. But look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the patience of Jesus. What's he doing? He's counseling her. He's teaching her. They're talking about worship. 
You know, all of a sudden, things that weren't important to this woman are becoming important to this woman. All of a sudden, they're talking about where to worship, how to worship, right? This wasn't, she didn't come here for that. She didn't come here for that. But all of a sudden, it's becoming more important. It's why. Jesus has you alone, and now that you're alone, you're thinking. You're thinking, maybe I should go back to church. You're thinking, I've had this Bible for years, I never understood it, maybe I should open it up and start to read it. You're thinking, you know, I haven't prayed in a long time. I have not done business with God. He's always seemed very distant to me. Maybe I should start to pray. How do you even start? Where do you even start? But all of a sudden, you're starting to think about it. The last thing is, um, he starts to become personal. He says, you need living water. Water will only change you. Water will only renew you. Water will only influence you or nourish you or refresh you if it's on you and in you right? If it's on you, it goes away, but it's got to go inside. It's got to penetrate. It's got to go inside. It's got to be digested. And he says, you need living water. She says, water? Yeah, I need water. I need running water. You know, what is living water? You know, a spring? It's going to be in, uh, in my house? You're a plumber? I don't, I don't get this. You know, but she says, I want that. I need this. I want this. He says, go call your husband. He's getting personal. You get offended by people around you? You get offended by the church and what it has to say? That's what makes you argue with God? He's becoming personal. He's touching things, sore spots. He's touching things that you didn't want. You you know, you, you can touch this, but not this. You can have this, but not this. Don't go there. But once he starts to touch those things, you know, he's becoming personal. It, it's, it becomes sore. Go call your husband. She says, I'm not really spiritually thirsty. You see, I have it together. I'm physically thirsty. I'm not really spiritually thirsty. I worship, you see. I worship here on this mountain. You guys worship over there. You know, let's talk about this. You know, he says, go, call your husband. You're thirsty. You're thirsty, all right. You're so thirsty and you're running dry and you're dying. You think men and love and sex and all these things are going to give you significance and it's going to give you a feeling of love and feeling of catharsis and a feeling of worth and a feeling of acceptance and you're going and you're going and you're going and you're becoming more and more worthless outside to people around you, even to the men around you, you've been rejected and you're going to the wrong places and it's killing you. It's killing you. You're looking for satisfaction and it's killing you. You know, you don't need to create faith. You know, Every one of us here has faith. It's just a matter of where that faith is directed. Every one of us right now has placed our hope in something, and that thing is going to renew us. That's what we believe. It's a matter of where it's being oriented, where, it's be, you know, where we're drinking from. It's not so much of how much of it we have. It's where we're drinking from. Most of us, throughout our lives, have ended up here because we've been drinking from seawater. And we realize it's not working. I'm still thirsty. I've tasted success, but I'm still thirsty. I've tasted, um, you know, the joy of having children, and, and yet they're disappointing. I can't believe they're disappointing. I told myself I would not be like my parents who'd be so tough on my children, and I'm tough on my children. It's because we're trying to get a sense of worth from them. They have to be absolutely perfect for us because otherwise we don't feel a sense of worth. I thought just, you know, when we get married, when I just get married, then everything's going to be okay. That person's going to resolve all these negative feelings I have about myself. And then you realize they have negative feelings about you. You know, and you don't, your sense of worth, it corrodes you. 
Now, the next two, we need a new center. We need to reorient. We're spinning out of orbit. And when you spin out of orbit, everything starts to implode and explode. That's what's happening. These next two verses are just absolutely remarkable. Okay, verses 25 to 26. And this is the assurance that we need. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ, you know, who's called Christ, uh, is coming. She longs, he says, I know what you're saying. You're right. There is something that goes beyond what I have. And I have been latching on. I, you, I get it. You're a prophet, and this is my life. And, you know, he says, she says, I know that someday the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to relieve everything that I've been looking for. I know it. I need it. I need him. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. You know, the woman says, oh, you're talking about spiritual reality? I'm waiting. That's what I'm longing for. That's why I'm going to all these men. Because you're right. I'm looking for spiritual truth. I'm looking for something that's going to last. I want to be able to say, I finally have this thing, this love in my life that's going to last. My life is broken and I'm longing and I'm longing. And she knows it. She's waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus responds. He says, I am he. I am he. He's responding. It's a remarkable statement. He's he's responding with the same phrase that when Moses and God are dialoguing all the way in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to, to go into Egypt to set his people free. And Moses says, I've been in the wilderness for 40 years. I don't look the part. When they ask me who sent me, what do I say? God tells them, you tell them that I am sent you. You tell them that I am sent you. And that phrase is the exact phrase that Jesus is using here. The woman says, I know that the one who's going to quench all my thirsts is coming. I'm waiting for him. I know he's coming. I'm longing for him. And Jesus says, I am. You know she gets it. Because the next time you hear about this woman, she's leaving behind her water jar and she runs off. She came for water. It's representative of the thirst, the deep inner thirst that has been quenched. She leaves her water jar. And where does she go back? The well of water is flowing into eternal life outward. She runs back to the town, to the very people that she's been avoiding to tell them that she has met the Christ. She has met the Christ. It's an amazing thing here. You know, he says, I'm the reality that you've been craving. The reason why you're sleeping with other men, you're looking for him, the ultimate him, the ultimate him that's going to that's give you real worth, lasting worth. You're thirsting for love, the ultimate love, the ultimate love that's going to give you worth, a worth that's going to last. And he says, I am. I am that worth. Why does she run back to those people? These people who rejected her, who shunned her, you know, in society. They represent the arduous journey, right? The whole reason why she's walking in the heat, why she's carrying the, you know, the sag in her shoulders. That's what, it's, it's them. She runs back, why? Because she's got a new life. She's got a new life. She's got a new freedom. And as a result, she's got a new agenda. 
The gospel gives you a new agenda because it gives you a new life. And why do we have a new life? Because she's found a new love. And you see the clue of this. You know, the cure to her situation is not a, a, just a, a better love. It's the only love that's going to last. The cure is love. It's not something less than the love that we have here. It's actually more. It's greater. It's a lasting love. It's available to anybody. You know why? Here are the clues. Verse 6. This entire passage takes place in the context of Jacob's well. Jacob's well was there, it said. The well that he gave to his son, Joseph, his prized son. Now, that's very, very significant that Jesus went out of his way to meet with this woman at a well. Because Jacob, you know, in verse 12, she says, are you greater than Jacob, our forefathers, Jacob? Are you greater than him? <laughs> Jesus said, yes, actually I am. You know, uh, Genesis, Jacob, um, the great story of Jacob. Um, how did Jacob meet his wife? He met his wife at a well. His wife was Rebecca. Uh, I'm sorry, Rachel. Beautiful Rachel willing to work 14 years of hard labor, manual labor, for Rachel's love. Rachel was beautiful. She was ethnically pure. She was sexually pure. And Jacob, just fitting, she was acceptable, in other words. Jacob's father, Isaac, how did he meet his wife? Rebecca, at a well. Rebecca was beautiful, it said. Isaac fell in love with her instantly. Rebecca was beautiful. She was ethnically pure. She was sexually pure. She was acceptable. Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jesus is the greater Isaac. You know why? Because this love is available to the unacceptable. Jesus is by a well. In each one of those cases... When Jacob approached uh, Rachel, yes, you know, he, he wanted a drink. He was feeding his flock. When Isaac met with Rebecca, he was feeding his flock. He was watering his flock. He was thirsty. Jesus is sitting here, tired and weary from his journey, comes across one who is not ethnically pure, impure, sexually impure, tired and weary thirsty at the well but offers her water Jesus is the greater Jacob Jesus is the greater Isaac why? because he can take somebody who is ethnically impure racially impure sexually impure morally impure religiously impure culturally impure crosses every boundary says I'm going to go to every boundary cross every boundary for you to get you to bring you back to me to draw you into me to change you. At the well, he's thirsty. At the well, he's thirsty. But he, it's the greatest, most acceptable person in all the earth comes to the unacceptable and offers living water. That's why he's the greater Jacob. That's why he is the greater Isaac. Now, she says, you're a prophet. I can totally tell you're a prophet. She starts to talk theology with him. You know, where do we worship? Jesus says, you, you know, he doesn't say, you don't need a temple. He doesn't say that. He says, the hour is coming and now is. In other words, you need a temple. You're absolutely right. You want to talk about worship? You need a temple. A temple is a center of worship. It's the place where you find access to God. But he says, I am that temple. 
I am he. I will be where the sacrifice is made. I am where you can find access. How do we know this? Later on in the book of John, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. At the temple, the high priest would arise. In every one of these religions in the ancient times, the high priest would rise to the top of the temple. He would be glorified. And he would stand at the top and perform his sacrifices, whatever type of sacrifice that culture offered. Because he was the focal point. He was the access point. There was no one closer to God at that moment in time than the high priest. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what was the hour that he was talking about? He is the temple. On the cross, Jesus is raised up. On a hill, on the cross, the cross is raised up and Jesus is standing, he's hoisted up on the cross. And there, as the sacrifice is being made, as his blood is being poured out, he says, I thirst. I am thirsty. It wasn't a physical thirst. There was a physical thirst. But he's saying the physical stuff I can endure. The nails on my hands, the nail on my feet, the crown of thorns, the insults that are being hurled at me, the thirst, that thirst I can endure. But he's talking about a cosmic thirst. On the cross, this giver of living water says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this, I'm alone and I'm cursed. I'm alone and I'm burning up because my center of worship, I worship the everlasting God and he has been taken away from me. When we worship something and it's taken away from us, we thirst. It feels like death. Jesus is on the cross and he's experiencing the cosmic death. He's experiencing hellfire. You know what hell is? We see it as fire, oven, you know, cranked up. No, no, you know, I'm sorry. Take me back, right? That's what we imagine with hell. Jesus is, you know what hell is? Hell is supposed to be that eternal separation between God and man. On the cross, Jesus is saying, I'm alone. I am forsaken. I am experiencing hell on the cross. My center of worship has been taken away from me. I am pure. I am pure in every way. And yet I am being consumed. My soul is longing for God. You know, your call to worship, it's that prayer that he's praying. My soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? That's what he's saying. My body and my soul are crying out for God, but he is gone. He is gone. Why? Why is he gone? Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was abandoned so that we could be loved. Jesus was disowned by God so that we could become owned by God. We could become adopted by God. We could become sons of God. Jesus was alone. To be alone is to be cursed. Jesus became the curse. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes, Jesus suffered the curse. He became the curse so that we would never, ever be alone. Jesus scaled the heights of Calvary and he, he descended the depths of hell. There is no boundary. He will not be willing to cross for you. And the deeper you plant that into your heart and life, that's the end of your thirst. Your job will not do it for you. So you, gotta, you, gotta, you can love your job, but you've got to distance yourself a little bit from your job. Your spouse will never be able to do that for you. 
You can love your spouse. I love my spouse. You can love your wife. You can love your husband. But you have to always make sure that there is that spiritual distance, just a little bit, to know that they will never accept you the way Jesus accepts you. They will never save you. They will never redeem you. They will never renew you the way Jesus will renew you. You need a perfect lover, somebody who can save, somebody who will transact, somebody who can absorb. You know, your spouse, they love you to the end, but they will never be able to do for you what only Jesus can do. They will never be able to absolve you of guilt. They can tell you to stop being guilty, but they will never be able to take the guilt away. They will never be able to transact that guilt. On the cross, you know what you see? The greatest lover, your greatest lover, taking your guilt. And it's proven on the cross because he shed his blood. He died for it. That's how you know. There's no greater assurance than that. And if it can happen for her, it can happen for anybody. It can happen for you and me right now. If it can heal her, it can heal me. If it can redeem her, it could redeem me. It could redeem you. You just need to come. When you're angry, this summer has been a summer of tremendous brokenness and frustration for me, disappointed by many people at times, but you can come anytime and it will never disappoint. Jesus will never disappoint you. Now, right now, if you're sitting here, because I gotta wrap up. If you're saying, Donnie, I'm trying to believe. If you're trying to believe, you don't believe. The incredible thing about belief is you can try not to believe, but your heart knows. If this is moving you, you believe. Will you come? Will you drink of the living water that only Jesus can offer for you? He went out of his way for you to drink. I'll close up and I'm going to say this. You know, there's a story. I've probably shared this story many times um, about a, a pastor who went to this one pastor's convention. Uh, and uh, I believe the pastor's convention was in Atlantic City, some seedy place, some area uh, where there's a seedy community. And um, in this pastor's convention, they opened up, it was kind of an open mic, and pastors were allowed to come up and share what they had learned, you know, much like we do when we're at retreats and conferences and stuff like this. And, um, you know, pastors kind of sitting there reserved, very proper. Um, a prostitute wandered in and heard, was part of the, 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 uh, the festivities of the day. She walks up to this mic. You can only imagine the pastors sitting there, half of them are repulsed, Half of them are cringing. Half of them are bracing themselves. Can you have three halves? You know, a third of them are bracing themselves. A third of them are cringing. A third of them are repulsed. And, and they're cringing. They're, what is she going to say? And they're kind of, kind of bracing themselves. And she walks up to the mic and she says, you know, last night I had a dream. And everyone's like, oh, should I yank her? What do I do? You know, this is, this is sounding sketchy. She says, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was dressed in white. And Jesus came up to me, amidst all of you, came up to me and said, will you dance with me? And so I took his hand, and he came to me, and we danced. And as we're dancing, he leaned over and he whispered into my ear. You know what he said? 
I'm crazy about you. That's Jesus. That's good theology. That's Jesus. Only a heart that's been melted in Christ by his love is a life that will change. That's the only way your agenda, that's the only way this church will work. If your heart has been melted, as long as I'm here, that's the only thing that's going to make it work. You can come with gifts. You can come with great ideas. You could be a great businessman. But only a heart that's been changed will ever get the mic. Will ever be able to really experience deep, lasting community and the joy of being in Christ, the joy of forgiveness. A preacher once said, and I'm going to close with this, in heaven, there are going to be many strange things. There's going to be a widow's penny. There's going to be a broken alabaster jar. There's going to be a cup of cold water. These are the things that are going to be in the museums that represent what brought us to Christ. What will be yours? What will be yours? Let's pray.